Great news. President Trump has brought back the coronavirus press briefings, which were some of the best shows on TV about three months ago. He stopped doing them. Now they are back. Uh, they were great. They were brilliant. They were helping him. And the left tried to shut them down. They tried not to air them. And they were successful at that, just like they tried to shut down our economy. They were successful at that, just like they're trying to shut down the, the presidential campaign because Joe Biden can't form a coherent English sentence. And so President Trump is not taking it anymore. We are in a whole new ball game. I hope he keeps doing them uh, a lot. Uh, they, this one went very well. He kept it short and sweet. It was very high energy. It was reassuring. And the best part of all, is that there was no Dr. Fauci. Why are your doctors not with you here today? Where's Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks? Well, Dr. Burks is right outside. Yes, please. Thank you, Mr. President. Love that answer. Uh, yeah, Dr. Burks is out there. And who's that other guy, Dr. Who? Dr. What now? That guy who was wrong about everything and took a lot of political power for himself? Yeah, I don't think so. We've all had enough of Dr. Fauci. Obviously, Dr. Fauci has been wrong on a lot of questions, which we will get to. And he took a lot of political power, things that properly should have been in the realm of politics. And then everyone pretended we're in the realm of science. I'm not opposed to having medical advisors at these things generally, but if he wants medical advisors there, he should have economic advisors there. He should have military advisors there. And there should be no question as to who is actually calling the shots. Nobody elected the exalted Dr. Fauci. The president is in control. The more he can show that he is in control, the better off he will be. The better off we will all be too. The country and of course the president for the presidential campaign. Right now, more briefings, more communication. That is the best way to ensure that he remains the president. There's just one thing that President Trump can do to greatly improve those briefings. We'll get into it. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back. Got to thank our friends over at Thompson Cigars. You know how much I love Thompson Cigars. You know how much I've loved Thompson Cigars for the last 14 years. I smoked a beautiful Davidoff cigar yesterday. This is a magnificent cigar. This is one of the best cigars I've smoked in, in weeks. And you know, I smoke a lot of cigars. Uh, Thompson has the best selection out there. You're spending a lot of time around the house these days, if you're anything like me, and maybe you're running out of ways to stay entertained. Thompson Cigar has hours of entertainment just to click away. They've got over a century in the business. They really know their stuff. They've got the best prices on the biggest brands in the business. And uh, when I, I mean, I'm talking, sometimes if you go to Thompson, you will get a cigar for like I don't know, 30, even 40% off what you would find in a shop. You get all the, all the great stuff. Davidoff, uh, Padron, Flor de las Antillas, Oliva, all, all my favorite stuff. Over 12,000 different cigar options. Thompson's also got great sampler packs. They got the five-pack fever program. They are America's number one choice for premium cigars. They got the best customer experience. I can't speak highly enough of these guys. For a limited time, Thompson's offering 15% off orders over 75 bucks or 20% off orders over 99 bucks. To take advantage of these incredible savings, simply go to thompsoncigar.com. Use promo code Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S. Go check out the cigar distributor that formed so much of my life and character. T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, cigar.com, promo code Knowles. The Trump presser was terrific. There was just one thing he got a little wrong. And I know people are going to agree with, disagree with me on this. Probably more people are going to agree with me as days go, go on. 
The one error he made is he bought the left's premise on the masks and he pushed the masks. And as he pushed the masks, he simultaneously conceded defeat, conceded that he was wrong early on about the masks. We're asking everybody that when you are not able to socially distance, wear a mask, get a mask. Uh, whether you like the mask or not, uh, they have an impact, they'll have an effect, and we need everything we can get. And he went on and talked about how he'll wear the mask sometimes and other people should wear the mask. Before we get into the scientific component of the masks, which, which we will get into, I've got Got some info here from the CDC. I just want to talk about the political component because I have been a warning the, the president and campaign about two things that are going to happen if he puts on the mask. One, it's going to project weakness abroad to our adversaries. But two, what it's going to do is grant the left their current premise don't forget, they've had, the left had a different tune on masks three months ago, but right now what they're saying is Trump was wrong not to wear the mask early on. He should have told everyone to wear the masks. He should have led by example. He killed people by not wearing the masks. And if you agree, if you believe that the masks really do work and they're super effective, then it's very easy to make the left's argument. So that was the warning I had immediately, within two seconds, the left started their victory dance, including Nancy Pelosi, on Wolf Blitzer's CNN show. I think with the president's comments today, uh, he recognized uh, the mistakes that he has made by now embracing mask wearing and the recognition this is not a hoax. It is a pandemic that has gotten worse before it will get better because of his inaction. And in fact, clearly it is the Trump virus. So Pelosi's always got to take it too far because she actually was making a pretty convincing argument, a little more of a subtle argument. And then she goes, this is the Trump virus. So this is what the New York Times had been prattling on about. They never want to blame China. They'll only say nice things about China, which actually started this pandemic, but they'll, they'll implausibly blame it on Trump. However, this first part of, of her argument is going to catch on. It already is. Chuck Todd is repeating these same kinds of things. That Trump is admitting that he was wrong, and therefore, if he was wrong and obstinate about it, it cost lives. That that isn't true. Uh, let's not forget that there were other people talking about not wearing masks early on. But it doesn't matter for Pelosi's polemic. Well, what do you mean when you say the Trump virus? The Trump virus. If they, if he had said uh, months ago, let's wear a mask, let's not, let's socially distance instead of having rallies and political whatever they were, uh, then more people would have followed his lead as the president of the United States instead of being a bad example, making it like a manhood thing not to wear a mask. <laughs> the gaslighting here is so tremendous. Pelosi's argument is if Trump a few months ago had just put, put on the mask and told us all to wear masks and socially distance, then we'd all be okay. Where was Nancy Pelosi a few months ago? Well, luckily we've got the tape, even though I'm sure this is going to be sent down the memory hole. Nancy Pelosi was in Chinatown in San Francisco, not wearing a mask, surrounded by zillions of people as the virus was exploding in the United States. And she, she acknowledged that there was a virus. And then she told people, ah, don't worry about that. Come on down to Chinatown. It's exciting to be here, especially at this time, uh, to be able to be unified with our community. Uh, we want to be vigilant about what uh, it might be on the, uh, 
of what is out there in other places. We want to be careful about how we deal with it, but we do want to say to people, come to Chinatown. Here we are. We're, again, careful, safe, and come join us. You know, especially with this virus, even if she had said, come on to little Tokyo, come on to little Italy, come on to, but the fact that it was Chinatown, Chinatown, where China, the country that started the whole pandemic, it's hilarious. And yet now we're three months later, nobody remembers that, right? We're, I guess we're more than three months late. This thing's been going on so long, but we're now, gosh, when did this, this all really started in March, April, May, June. Now we're in July. Oh my gosh, five months later. And no one remembers that. No one remembers that Nancy Pelosi, that the Democrats, that Joe, Joe Biden in particular, were saying that we shouldn't shut down. We shouldn't cut off travel from China. We shouldn't, we shouldn't change what's going on when it suits them. Then when it suits their political agenda, they say the opposite and they blame Trump. It wasn't just Nancy Pelosi and all the other Democrats though. It wasn't just Eric Swalwell, the erstwhile presidential candidate who uh, tweeted out to stop buying masks. It was Dr. Fauci himself. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it, because people are listening really no, closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face. And can you get some schmutz sort of staying inside there? Of course, of course. But when you think masks, you should think of healthcare providers needing them and people who are ill. Right, right. Are we gonna call it the Fauci virus? Are we gonna call it the Pelosi virus? Are we gonna call it the Swalwell virus? No, but Fauci here makes a great point. There are two ways. There are two ways to read what Fauci said then compared to what all the Democrats and Fauci are saying now, which is he was being honest then and the Democrats are not being honest now. He was being honest then when he said these masks aren't that effective. And now the Democrats are being dishonest about it because they want to virtue signal and turn it into a political symbol, which Joe Biden did very early on. He would wear it dangling from his ear. It wasn't even covering his mouth. He just wore it dangling to show his political uh, affiliation. And uh, they're just a way to kind of make people feel better, which Fauci also talks about there. So that's one way to read it. The other way to read it is he was being dishonest then because he wanted to preserve all of the masks for the healthcare workers. And now he's being honest. I think there's actually a little bit of truth to both of them. There's a lot of truth to the first part. And there's a little bit of truth to the second one too, which is that they didn't want to run on masks that are of high, high quality, you know, the N95 or, or whatever, even the more sophisticated masks, because they wanted to preserve those for healthcare workers. Uh, but now that we know that it's okay, and we never even came close to overwhelming the hospital system, now everybody can go buy the masks. But the masks still don't do very much, especially the way people wear them in public, especially those cloth masks, which people are not wearing correctly. And actually, they might hurt because people are touching their faces all the time. I think that's probably true. You don't need to take my word for it. Got uh, a, a review piece printed out from the CDC. This is not some old piece. This is a new piece. This is from uh, May 2020, non-pharmaceutical measures for pandemic influenza in non-healthcare settings, personal protective and environmental measures. Lots of jargon like you always see in these. Just a quick line from the abstract. We will not go in and read the whole paper. 
This is on the efficacy of masks and of, of hand washing, by the way, to, uh, to slow the spread of a lab-confirmed influenza, which is a virus, a virus like this virus. Although mechanistic studies support the potential effect of hand hygiene or face masks, so those are, those are just some mechanistic studies, Evidence from 14 randomized control trials of these measures did not support a substantial effect on transmission of laboratory-confirmed influenza. They don't do very much. Even the hand-washing apparently doesn't do very much, but certainly these masks that people are not even wearing properly don't do very much. There is no evidence, very, very little evidence that they do much of anything at all. There is lots of evidence that they don't do much of anything at all. It is, as I have been saying for many weeks now, a political symbol, primarily. Are there uses for masks? Sure, there are some uses for masks. But the way that they are being used right now, the way that they are being pushed, the way that people are being bullied into wearing them everywhere, does not have a scientific basis. It is a political symbol. And it, I think it's counterproductive for the president to play into this because what the mask says is we can't reopen the economy. What the mask says is we shouldn't go vote in person. We should have mail-in votes all around the country. Hope that'll turn out fine. What the mask says is Trump was wrong from the beginning. People aren't going to remember what Fauci said. They're not going to remember what Swalwell said. They're not going to remember what Pelosi said. They're going to remember Trump. Trump's the biggest guy in the room. Trump's the president of the United States. They're going to say Trump was wrong and people are dead because of Trump. That's what the, that's what the mask conveys. How does the mask slow down the spread of the virus in the vast majority of cases? Not very well at all. So they call it the Trump virus. That's what they're going to keep calling it. Meanwhile, the Democrats are going to defend China. And they're not, they're not just going to defend China in an offhanded comment here or there. They're going to rise on the floor of the House of Representatives and they are going to defend the decision of China to lie about the pandemic. Let's not forget there was a study from the University of Southampton early on in this spread. It said that if China had stopped lying just one week, one week earlier than they did, they would have reduced the spread by 66%. Two weeks, 86% three weeks over 90%. Here is Democratic Representative Adam Smith defending China. This puts us in the very risky position of passing really bad legislation at the last second for no good reason. And I would urge members to vote now. Now, let me be clear. We absolutely need to hold accountable Russia, China, whoever wants to interfere with our process of developing a vaccine or cyber hack us in any other way. And there are enormous number of tools to do so. I do want to point out and, and just simply make an urgent plea. One of the gentleman's arguments was that China hid the true risk of the virus from the American people. And yes, that is terrible that China did that. It's not actually their job to warn the American people. It's the president's job to warn the American people. Unbelievable. He, this, is such a, this is such a leftist dude thing to do is you make a point that's like somewhat mainstream and then you totally undercut that point with a snarky comment. Uh, you know, it's like not really my job to do that. Okay. But uh, anyway, it's fine. I'm not going to complain about it or anything. It's not going to, it's so lame. And in this case, also just incorrect 
because the way that China covered up this virus was they bought off the World Health Organization and then they got the World Health Organization to lie on their behalf. But it very much is the responsibility of the World Health Organization to tell everybody when there's an epidemic brewing in some country. And the reason that the WHO didn't do that is because it was invaded and it was, it was hollowed out from within by China. Imagine that though. Imagine taking the side of an international foe over your duly elected president. You know, Ronald Reagan used to have this this dichotomy he would refer to and say, we don't have enemies in American politics, only opponents. You know, we, we only, it seems like a distinction without a difference. But what he's saying there is, we are not the enemies of each other. Democrats are not our enemies. Republicans are not the Democrats' enemies. We, we're fighting political battles, but our real enemies are abroad and we need to be united in the face of them. And the Democrats have totally given that up. <laughs> Maybe they never believed that to begin with. Maybe it was only Republicans who believed that. But, but we're seeing it now, and the Democrats have been defending China for a very, very long time. That's the kind of hatred that they have for this president, that they will defend China, for goodness sakes. So what is President Trump going to do? The only thing he can do, the only campaign he has left available to him are these briefings. That's what he's got to communicate directly to the people. And what you're going to see the left trying to do the whole time is just distracting with all these sorts of little side issues or kind of, you know, gossip stories or so one of them in particular is the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell was the the associate of Jeffrey Epstein. Even though Ghislaine Maxwell is extraordinarily closely tied to major Democrats, most notably Bill Clinton, because she's been photographed with Donald Trump when she, you know, she and Jeffrey Epstein were at Mar-a-Lago and various other places like that, they're trying to tie Trump much more to Ghislaine Maxwell than Bill Clinton, who actually flew on that jet something like 27 times. They're trying to, if you, if you watch any of the documentaries about Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, they, they more or less erase Bill Clinton from them, and they only focus on Donald Trump. So, so I'm, I'm interested in the Ghislaine Maxwell story as a story in itself, because obviously there's this international pedophile ring of extremely wealthy and influential people, notably Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton or whoever. I'm interested in that story. That's not what is being asked of President Trump in these press briefings. They're trying to pull him back into it. How does President Trump respond to the Ghislaine Maxwell question? I thought it was one of the most entertaining responses of the whole briefing. I haven't really been following it too much. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach, and I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Uh, but I wish her well, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know the situation with Prince Andrew. Just don't know. Not aware of it. Great answer. It's a very funny answer. Oh, I wish her well. He's not, he's not covering anything up here. He's not trying to give this really perfectly manicured political answer. He goes, oh, yeah, I, don't, I hope she does. I wish her well. Yeah, I, I knew her over the years. I saw her in Palm Beach a number of times. And uh, you'll remember, I think it was in 2015, President Trump predicted that the Epstein relationship was going to be particularly tough for the Clintons. Because Trump has always been open about his Epstein relationship. The Clintons have tried to cover up their Epstein relationship. So he's just putting it on the table. Yeah, I don't know. Hope, hope she's doing well. I don't know. See what happens. <laughs> but but that's, that's not on me. Don't worry about you guys. Moving on, we're going to talk about 
what really matters in this campaign. And, and that's got to be the attitude for all of these briefings. I hope he does one almost every single day. That is going to be one, the only way that he can win this election probably. And two, it's probably the only entertainment we've got because TV is shut down, right? Hollywood is shut down. And even our sports, which are slowly starting back up again, are totally selling out. You know, the NFL is unwatchable now because they hate America and they encourage players to disrespect the American flag. NBA is encouraging players to wear this Marxist slogan, BLM. The one holdout was baseball, America's favorite pastime. It was the one holdout. There had only been one player who was some no-name loser a few years ago who, who took a knee during the national anthem. All the rest of them, good patriotic Americans. But BLM, disrespect for the American flag, has come to baseball. The players are now kneeling to an empty stadium. And uh, something tells me the stadiums are going to empty even when they remain open. People don't like this kind of stuff. Major League Baseball not only tolerated this, they tweeted out a photo of the Giants kneeling down. It said, members of the San Francisco Giants kneel during the national anthem, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, a very particular organization run by self-avowed Marxists seeking to destroy, quote, the Western prescribed nuclear family. That's baseball for you. You know, I think the whole point of baseball is you go there with your son, right? You take your kid down to the ballpark and have a hot dog and a beer and you watch the ball game. And so much of baseball is about the nuclear family. Now they're embracing people who want to destroy the nuclear family. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I canceled my MLB TV subscription. Uh, I would encourage other people to do that as well. I don't think it really matters very much. I, uh, you know, I, I don't think people exercising their uh, free choice with their wallets is, is going to matter as much as just the, uh, this is a symbol of how the sport has been hollowed out. MLB's problems have been going on for a long time. Viewership has been declining. It's just, uh, I don't know. I think the caving into this political pressure is more a consequence of the collapse of baseball than a cause of it. And, and of course, you know, some people are accusing conservatives of being hypocritical here, of being part of cancel culture, because we don't like the political message. Cancel culture is leftist by definition, because cancel culture requires you to have what an early Marxist uh, uh, political philosopher would have called cultural hegemony, what we call institutional power. They're the ones who control the institutions. It's kind of a, a flip of the leftist argument on institutional racism or something, something like that, institutional oppression. Conservatives can go along with cancel culture. They can go along, you know, jump on a bandwagon, but they, they don't actually control the cancel culture. It is a strictly leftist phenomenon. And there, there's an, another point on this, which I think the term cancel culture is so wishy-washy. It's so ambiguous sometimes. I think a way to consider it for all the various ways that we could define cancel culture is the way Chesterton described thought. He said, there's a thought that stops thought, and that's the only thought that ought to be stopped. Well, there is a culture that cancels culture, and that is the only culture that ought to be canceled. There is a culture, and it's, uh, I'm not just saying cancel, cancel culture, which has become a slogan. I'm actually going a little bit further than that. Any culture, such as, say, the BLM Marxists, who want to destroy our American flag, who want to disrespect the American flag, dismantle the nuclear family. That is the, that is the destruction of culture. That culture has to be canceled. 
any, uh, this is kind of my argument on, on why it's incoherent to burn the American flag. You're using your first amendment rights to burn the symbol of the country that gives you your first amendment rights. doesn't make any sense. That's why I would advocate as many Republicans have an interpretation of the laws or a constitutional amendment that would prohibit such acts of desecration, which, which conservatives argued by the way, until not so long ago when Justice Scalia sided with the more liberal-minded members of the court and uh, reinterpreted the laws, but even, even granted that. You could always have a constitutional amendment. You, it is insufficient just to say the battlefield is neutral. It's not neutral. Oh, leave our hands. You do whatever you want to do. I'll do whatever I want to do and we're fine. That's not how society works. We actually do have an effect on one another. The left has a form and a substance to their politics. They have the form of like the rioting and the burning down the cities and the slogans and all that stuff and the substance. They actually want to accomplish something. Conservatives have convinced ourselves in the last 30 years that, that it should only have form, that we should only, only stand for free speech, but not stand for any speech in particular. You have to have both. You have to have both the form and the substance. Conservatives need to wake on up to that. I think some conservatives are lulling themselves into complacency because they believe that Joe Biden is a kind of moderate guy. He's not Bill de Blasio. He's not Elizabeth Warren. He's not Bernie Sanders. He's just a kind of moderate guy, right? Therefore, it doesn't really matter if Trump wins. Joe Biden is not awake. (laughs) Joe Biden doesn't remember his name sometimes. Joe Biden's campaign is being run by radicals. Don't take my word for it. Campaign just issued its spending plan. You know how expensive the Joe Biden campaign spending plan is? The moderate campaign spending plan? $10 trillion. $10 trillion with a T. $2 trillion to fight climate change. So 20%, $2 trillion of that price tag is going to be spent launching a battle against the sun monster. $1.3 trillion for infrastructure. I can actually get behind infrastructure in theory, except that usually that money is just completely wasted. You know, you're driving on the highway and you see 15 guys standing around doing nothing. And then one guy maybe swinging a hammer and you say, that's there's a government union job. There it is. So in theory, it's maybe it's okay, but in practice, probably not. $750 billion for healthcare. I thought, I thought Barack Obama and Joe Biden solved the healthcare problem. What was it now? 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Remember Joe Biden himself said, this is a big effing deal. Well, how come we need to spend three quarters of a trillion dollars on healthcare if you already solved it 10, 11 years ago? Because there's no end to it. There's no solving it. There's no solving it with, there's just going to be more and more and more money. $750 billion for higher education. That's what we need. We need to uh, send three quarters of a trillion dollars to our modern day madrasas, the madrasas of liberalism to, to borrow a phrase from my friend, Josh Hammer, who these schools, all they do is indoctrinate people in leftist ideology. A lot of money for that. 700 billion for Biden's Buy American plan, which apparently he stole from Bernie Sanders. 640 billion for housing. 125 billion dollars for Biden's opioid plan. What is the Biden's, what is the opioid plan? This last time I could tell, all the left is trying to do is legalize more and more drugs. Maybe they're going to, maybe it's 125 billion to legalize them. 30 billion for criminal justice reform means springing springing inmates out of prisons, although frankly, Republicans aren't any better on that. 
and $750 billion for preschool and K through 12, which is where most of the educational battles are really fought. It happens, the, the indoctrination happens long before college. So three quarters of a trillion for that. And then more than three quarters of a trillion for universal preschool, expanded childcare, you know, get those kids out of the home as soon as possible, get them into state-sponsored education camps. 10 trillion on all sorts of bad stuff. Those are the stakes. Don't let anybody tell you that Joe Biden is going to be the moderate guy. That's not moderate. The moderation is gone. Joe Biden is a guy who doesn't want to do anything as president. He wants to be president. He wants bridges to be named after him and highways to be named after him. He's going to let all the policymaking be done by the younger people who are much, much more radical. Speaking of radical, you know, one of the few voices of reason recently in politics is Kanye West. I know that sounds crazy. I never expected that to happen. Kanye West, who's always been a little kooky in his career, is saying things in politics now that are extraordinarily wise. He's against abortion. He's pro-God. <laughs> he supports America. So we wore the Make America Great Again hat. He realizes that politics is about more than just technocratic policies. It's about a view of the human person in the world. He's been saying a lot of great things. And so everyone's calling him crazy. Everybody's calling him crazy. Now, Kanye has certain issues, psychological issues. But listen to the note. This is from Kanye's wife, Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian West, who posted this to social media just yesterday. As many of you know, Kanye has bipolar disorder. Anyone who has this or has a loved one in their life who does this knows how incredibly complicated and painful it is to understand. Then she goes on and says all sorts of nice things about Kanye. We as a society talk about giving grace to the issue of mental health as a whole. However, we should also give it to the individuals who are living with it in times when they need it the most. Sure, totally agree with that. That's fine. I'm not questioning Kim Kardashian West's care for her husband. And I'm not questioning that Kanye has had very public psychological issues in the past. However, in the past, when Kanye has done or said actually crazy things, people are pretty quiet about it. They, you know, they'll laugh about it or maybe they'll criticize him. They won't concern troll him. But when Kanye West says basic things like babies are babies and we shouldn't kill them, or God exists and we should, we should do good things and not do bad things, or when he says, I like America, I love America, pretty basic things. Then everyone goes out and says, he's insane. You got to lock him up. You got to shut him up. That is the sign, not of an insane Kanye. Whether, whether or not Kanye is sane or insane or how sane he is or how insane he is, that is a, that's the baseline. What's changed here is he's saying things that are true. That is the sign of an insane culture. And uh, I, I think we should, of course, encourage Kanye to ha live a wonderful, good life and take care of himself and his family. And we should also encourage him to continue saying the basic true things that not that long ago, everyone would have agreed on. But in this lunatic culture, people seem to think is crazy. We have got to get to the mailbag. First though, I've got to thank you. Thank you for subscribing to the Michael Knowles Show YouTube channel. Not just the Daily Wire YouTube channel, but the Michael Knowles Show one. Be sure to hit the bell and check out exclusive content posted on that channel, such as the best of the worst TikTok videos. Also, we have a backstage live tomorrow. That will be 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And you got to get Ben's book, 
how to destroy America in three easy steps. I just uh, did a live signing with Ben of that book. I hosted it. Ben signed a lot of books. Uh, I, I read it. I really enjoyed reading it. You can pick it up on Amazon or at Barnes and Noble now and get a Daily Wire Reader's Pass. One dollar, one dollar, actually less, 99 cents for your first month, then three dollars a month after that. Nothing less than this cup of coffee. Well, it's definitely less than this cup of coffee, which I got from the coffee pot. You get access to our mobile app, articles ad-free, and access to exclusive editorials. Go to dailywire.com, sign up for just a buck. Head on over to Daily Wire. We'll be right back with the mailbag. Some people are saying that the, the Daily Wire Reader's Pass is more expensive than this cup of coffee, which I got from the coffee pot. You got to buy the coffee pot. Don't forget about that. People forget about all these sorts of hidden costs in life. But you, you can uh, get such important, valuable information right now for not a whole lot of money. And, and speaking of that, this week's mailbag is sponsored by the Benham Brothers. You can learn how to own a business without it owning you. Get a 15% discount on the Benham Brothers new course, Expert Ownership at BenhamBrothers.com slash Knowles. First question from Giovanna. What a beautiful name, Giovanna. Michael, if history repeats itself, what portion of history are we seeing play out right now? The French Revolution, the Civil War era, the rise of the Soviet Union. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you for all you do. Yes, <laughs> we are seeing those things play out right now. You're right that uh, history can repeat itself, especially if people don't learn their history and Americans don't read a lot of history anymore. And Marx and Engels were actually right when they said history repeats itself first as tragedy, then as farce. And we're seeing the kind of farcical version of all of those terrible events now. But uh, farce can be pretty dangerous too on the political stage. We're seeing a little bit of the French Revolution with the overthrowing of tradition and the the intense hatred of uh, the leader of the country, Donald Trump, and with actual explicit calls for the guillotine, and they renamed that autonomous zone CHOP. That's not a great sign. We're seeing some aspects of the rise of the Soviet Union in the sense that we've got no faith really in our government institutions or declining faith, and some people are calling for out-and-out communist revolution, including the leaders of BLM, who are, who are trained Marxists, to use their own words. We're seeing some signs of the Civil War, right? People just really in America really hate one another. We're seeing some signs of the uh, fall of Rome. This is one issue with people who don't know much about history, is they compare everything to the fall of Rome. However, I got to tell you, as someone who is a history buff, there are some similarities uh, to, to the fall of Rome. You, you're not going to look at any particular historical event and say, this is what's playing out again. This is why we need to read broadly into history is because you can see the individual uh, aspects that are being, that, that we're being reminded of now. If history actually just repeated itself perfectly, we could predict it and prevent it. But, but it, that's not quite what happens. That's why it surprises us a lot of the time. And that's why a, a broader reading, a broad and a deep reading into history will give you a better sense of what's going on. It'll also calm you down. I have friends who, you know, they pull their hair out because Trump did this or Hillary did that. And they're just, they get so angry about it. And they're so, and a lot of that is because they're scared about what's going to happen in the future. And, and they'll say, this has never happened. It's unprecedented. But if you have a, a reading of history, you will know that there's very little that is actually unprecedented. And you can see the consequences of, of when similar things play out. And just from a personal standpoint, 
it will keep you a little calmer. It will keep more hair on your head. It will, it will make, you, make you feel a little better, even, even as we plunge into the abyss. From Sam. Hey, Michael. I'm a huge fan, and I think you definitely have the best show on the Daily Wire. Thank you, Sam. Due to my being busy with schooling and military life, I have a couple different dating apps. In my profiles, I explicitly state how I am in the National Guard, how I'm a gun enthusiast, because those things are important to me. However, I think it's having a negative impact on who I match with. I've gotten many nasty messages about how I'm pro-fascism or I'm pro-shootings because of my interests. I'm dating to marry, so I would like whoever I date to be on board with my lifestyle. What should I do? Do I take those things off my dating profiles and tell whoever I go out with that I'm pro-gun later, or should I just leave it on and hope for the best? It sort of depends on your age and your timeline, because when you're, when you're dating in middle school or high school, and then let's say you end up getting married later on, just, just to use a hypothetical example, then not only will the views of your beloved change, but your own views are going to change as well. And you're going to grow together with a person. And so I just think putting all your cards on the table, is not always necessary. The older you are and the tighter the time scale of getting married, the less you're likely to change and the more you need to kind of be on the same page from the beginning. So it depends. If you're, if you're 18 years old, maybe downplay it a little bit possibly. If you're 25 years old, 20, 27 years old, then I, I would maybe be more likely to put it on the table because I, I would lean in the direction of putting everything on the table. You don't want there to be too much confusion. You don't want to waste time. You don't want to waste money on dates that aren't going to go anywhere. However, one issue with the left is they actually don't understand what the right thinks. So if you downplay it a little bit, you might be able to get past the kind of prejudices that leftists have. So they get to know you as a person. They realize you're not a terrible, awful fascist, Nazi, whatever. And then they will come around to realize, oh, maybe I've been lied to about these points of view. As all things in, in human interactions, circumstance plays a large role here. But I would, I would lean more on the side of being forthright than, than hiding things. Just remember, you're supposed to be innocent as a serpent, Wise as a dove and innocent as a serpent. From Michael. Greetings, Michael Knowles, mostly peaceful, austere religious scholar. My question concerns the Bible. In Matthew, Jesus reinforces and specifies the rules for man to live by. He talks about divorce. He says any man who marries a divorced woman is committing adultery. Can you talk about why he might have said that or why that is the case? Thanks for all you do. P.S. Ghislaine Maxwell did not suicide herself in the back of the head twice. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. This is a, a hard saying from Christ and So a lot of people don't want to believe that he means what he says he did, but I think he does mean that. And there are a lot of hard sayings, and Christ talks about how there there are hard sayings. This is one of the few times in the Gospels where Christ explicitly gives a point of view on a a very human matter, on a very practical human matter in very blunt terms. Often Christ is speaking in parables, and here he's being very direct. And he says, man and woman, they... They were made to leave their families and join together and what God has joined, let no man separate and uh, don't, don't get divorced. And he responds to people who say, but the law of Moses says we can get divorced. And he says, right, because of the hardness of your heart, God gave you that law, but it was not so from the beginning. Don't get divorced. And so uh, you shouldn't get divorced. Now, there, there are some questions here. First of all, in the case of certain marriages, a, a separation can be beneficial or even required. You know, if in the case of abuse or something, endangering the kids, you might have to separate. Um, that's not the same as divorce. 
necessarily, and there are implications for how you live your life after that kind of a separation. In some cases, marriages are not valid from the beginning. This is why there is the process of annulment. What annulment is recognizing is not that something's gone wrong in your marriage later on, but that something was illegitimate about it before the marriage actually took place. So there is that process in the church as well. Uh, in, in some cases, people say they're getting married, but it's not, it isn't a marriage. What the thing that they are talking about is not really a marriage in the sacramental sense and in the sense that Christ is talking about. You know, I, I'm speaking about this from the perspective of, you know, 2,000 years of the Catholic Church uh, getting down very in, into the specifics on this sort of thing. Other varietals of uh, Christian profession have, have different views on this sort of thing. I, I would encourage you, even if you're not Catholic, explore the Catholic view on this because there is, you know, 2,000 years of literature on it to help explain what is a a hard saying. From Alice, hi Michael, what do conservatives need to do to make sure that we don't turn into everything we dislike about the radical left, assuming the country is eventually mended and the leftist movement dies down? We need to stop worrying about that question so much. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, what we've convinced ourselves, I mentioned this earlier in the show, is that politics only has form, it doesn't have substance. So we've said, you know, for instance, we don't like it when the left tells us that evil things are good and tries to make the government shove that down our throats. So therefore, we should not say that good things are good and recognize that all law has a moral quality to it and therefore assume our roles as legislators when we win elections. That doesn't follow. That doesn't make any sense at all. When you say that, for instance, you can't legislate morality, which is a nonsense, right? All laws legislate morality. Or when you say, I can't tell people what a good thing is, which is what the government does, right? Even if you're trying not to, even if you're saying the government should not say what the good thing is. You are saying what a good thing is, right? You are making a moral claim and a claim about politics. All that does is seed the ground to the left. We need to have the courage to exercise political power when it is given to us by the people. And uh, I think sometimes conservatives forget that courage is a virtue. It's actually a prerequisite of all the other virtues. From Peter, dear novenophobic kofefe, While I generally agree with your take on current topics, I must say your opinion on the nude Portland protester is lacking something. Wokeness. You repeatedly refer to this protester as she and woman and female and refer to her genitalia. Now, I didn't see the frontal view of this protester, but can we really be certain this wasn't a man showing his genitals and his breasts to officers in protest of whatever Z was protesting? Maybe this person identifies as a man. I stand corrected. Thank you for that, that brotherly, that fraternal correction. I am sorry and I apologize to all the, the great deities of wokeness. From Jared, hi Michael. The other day, Clavin mentioned that he did not believe that Jesus Christ was perfect, was a perfect human being, which really took me by surprise, but maybe shouldn't have. What is your take on Christ's humanity and divinity? Appreciate your time and consistent effort. Looking forward to your response. God bless. So I went back and listened to, to Drew's bit on this because I, I had heard from a couple people that, that he, had, he had said this. And because, of, uh, because we got to save the clave and I actually haven't gotten to have a stogie with Drew in a few days. It, what Drew was not saying is that Christ committed sin. He was not saying that. Christ is sinless, and and Drew is acknowledging that. Really, this was a bit of a semantic quibble about the meaning of the word perfect. Uh, Christ is exactly who he is to be, and Drew acknowledges that as well, which I would describe as perfect, and which traditionally I think is described as perfect. What the point Drew was making is that Christ, in his humanity, had to learn things. Uh, 
And so he, and I, Drew actually went further on this point than I would go. Uh, however, that's kind of neither here nor there. You can go listen to what Drew said. But in as much as Drew was saying Christ in his humanity had to learn things, that is obviously the case. We know that he grows in wisdom as he, uh, as he matures and grows up. He's subject to all of humanity. That is the essence of the incarnation. He is also fully divine. What we're discussing here is a, a mystery called the hypostatic union. This is the union of Christ's divine nature and his human nature. He is, uh, there were many debates in the early church about this. And there were many heretics, like the Arian heretics, Arius being the heresiarch who got punched by Santa Claus at the uh, Council of Nicaea because he denied Christ's divinity. Some people said Christ is fully God and not human. It's only an ima- in, in illusion that he's human. And some people said Christ is fully human and not God. He's just, you know, really holy or something, like Arius. Actually, he is fully God and fully man. And so he is perfect and he is sinless and he is fully human in his human nature and subject to all of, all of that which we are subject to as humans. It would be difficult to sum all of that up in 30 seconds or so. Impossible, you might say. One cannot comprehend it because we are comprehended by God himself, right? So we, it, in our finite minds, we cannot comprehend infinity. But we can say, and I think this is the point that's trying to make, that Drew was, was making on his show, Christ in his human nature was subject to finitude, while Christ in his divine nature, of course, is not. Last question from Nick. Dear Michael, we usually are so aligned in our beliefs, but I really think you got it wrong when you scolded Joe Biden for pushing Islam in our public schools. You may disagree, but I for one believe that Islam is right about women. I long for a society where women must ask my permission before leaving the house with only one simple outfit to choose from. (laughs) My wife's credit card bill would fall to nearly zero, not to mention how much we would save on makeup. And just think of how much faster my morning commute will be once we've revoked all of their driver's licenses. Don't you see now why we need Joe in 2020? You know what, Nick? I can't argue with that. He makes, he's making a better argument than, than much of the democratic campaign apparatus. Uh, That is our show. On that, on that very sophisticated point, we will leave it there. I will see you. I will see you tomorrow, actually, for the backstage, and then I'll see you on Monday. I'm Michael Knowles. This is the Michael Knowles Show. If you enjoyed this episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Supervising producers, Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Assistant director, Pavel Widowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Audio mixer, Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup, Nika Geneva. Production assistant, Ryan Love. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. If you prefer facts over feelings, aren't offended by the brutal truth, and you can still laugh at the insanity filling our national news cycle, well, tune in to The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get a whole lot of that and much more. See you there.